My name is Joseph L. Flatley, and I'm a journalist who specializes in conspiracy theories and French culture. Over the years, I've met cultists and occultists, flat earthers, and doomsday bunker salesmen, to name only a few. One thing I hear often is that the end of the world is near, and these days, you have to wonder if there might be some truth to that. My new podcast is called Failed State Update. Through interviews and original reporting, each episode asks the question, is the world ending, or does it just seem like it is? Think of it as fresh air for the Orwellian dystopia we've suddenly found ourselves in. Available now on iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, and wherever you get your podcasts. makes its way to the gate. On the other side of the gate, the gate features the weird spiral around a tree logo of organic avant-garde inside. Each side is a... My name is Joseph L. Flatley, and I'm a journalist based in Pittsburgh. I've spent the year traveling around the country talking to ex-members of a religious group called the GCCA, or Global Community Communications Alliance. Right now, we're listening to a recording that I made when I attended one of its church services in southern Arizona earlier this year. Three and a half hours to get down to the Gallus from Tucson, because I was like stopping every half hour to take pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Go to the Titan Missile Museum or whatever, you know, just random. The group was founded in 1989 by Gabriel of Urantia, an amateur musician from Pittsburgh with a couple divorces in his past. These days, he rules over his followers alongside his spiritual partner, Neon Emerson Chase. They preach that the Lord will soon return to judge the world, and when this happens, Gabriel and his followers will be the new leaders of humanity. After returning from Arizona, I went into the studio with my executive producer, Kay Gerard, to discuss the trip. So why don't you tell me how you got to the compound and kind of what led you there? I was in Tucson interviewing ex-members of this cult, the uh, Global Community Communications Alliance, and they all live in a compound in southern Arizona. Uh, it's a little town called Tumacacri. It's very close to the Mexican border. And I wanted to check it out. So one of the endeavors of this cult is they have a... They have a radio station in Tucson that just plays the leader's music for all the good people of Tucson, and they constantly play this commercial saying, basically, if you can come and work for us for free, and then they have like a list of jobs that they need filled, call this number. Divine administration is looking for recording engineers, sound engineers, graphic designers, IT specialists, Film specialists such as cameramen, scriptwriters, editors, and special effects. Architects, construction workers, car and heavy machinery mechanics, agricultural professionals, hospice doctors, nurses, CNAs, and clerical staff, attorneys, massage therapists, website and database designers. 
So I called the number. It was a, like a Saturday, and a woman answered the phone and uh, asked me my name. Um, I didn't want them to be able to Google me and see that I was a journalist. So I gave him a phony name. Basically, it turned into like a series of several phone calls, and I had to text them my photo, uh, clearly showing my face and my eyes. I don't know if that was for identification purposes or if some psychic was going to read my my aura through my that photograph of my eyes. Then I passed, and they said, show up at the compound at 10 minutes before 10 a.m. on Sunday, the next day. So you get there at 10 to 10. You park your car. It's like something from a movie. He has to enter a special code into the electronic gate, and then it slowly opens. Now walks this dude. He says his name is Arlen, and he's a... Uh, He's a security guy for the for the group, and he needs to to uh, frisk me for weapons. Well, um, if you wouldn't mind, mm-hmm. um, because we have just with the state of the world and all mm-hmm. the things going on in the world, um, if you wouldn't mind if I just checked you and pat you down a little bit. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. So he frisks me and um, decides I'm not a threat, you're, you're and. We lock my car outside of the gate and lock me in the gate and um, hop on the golf cart and drive into the compound. The home of the GCCA is called Avalon Organic Gardens and Eco Village. Contrary to what you might expect from a cult compound, Avalon is a sun-drenched paradise nestled in the Santa Cruz River Valley. I soaked it all in as we drove to Salvington House, the name of the building where the actual church service took place. I could collect your um, the contribution. Yeah, the teacher is better here. Well, um, it's saying just it's forty contribution. Mm-hmm. Would you like to stay for lunch? Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. So I um, so I arrived at Salvington House and get off my golf cart, and um, I'm introduced to the woman who interviewed me over the phone the night before or the day before, and. Um, they just kind of, again, you know, the small talk, the kind of subtly asking me questions and deflecting my questions and um, introduced me to a couple people. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's dressed up in their, like, best Sunday hippie clothes. Everybody's, like, milling around. It's, like, it's very much like going to, like, a Unitarian church or something. It has that vibe. Okay. And then they hit me up for 50 bucks. They're like, you know, being a uh, spiritual commune in the desert ain't cheap. And, uh, you know, we ask for a $40 donation. And if you want to stick around for lunch after, that's an additional $10. So, And the first thing they did was um, they brought up a big TV and we watched conspiracy theory videos off of YouTube. They referred to this as their alternative news segment. Basically, what they said is there is so much fake news that they this was like an antidote to the fake news. Which is odd to me because it's not like... Anybody in the compound is allowed to watch the news. So it's like there's nothing to combat. So obviously these videos are more about indoctrination and scaring the hell out of, of the uh, the members of the of the cult. So it was like videos of a, 
of mudslides and flooding, all with the um, underlying message that this is happening now because it's the end of the world. And these poor people, this is the only TV they got to watch all week. And they were thrilled by it and frightened by it and probably titillated a little bit. Hello, my name is Gabriel of Urantia. Spirit solution, justice to God's people. The new Jerusalem is coming. How not to have a heart attack while looking at conspiracy videos on the internet. Many individuals want to become famous by inventing fantastic stories. And they use so-called insiders who themselves want to be famous. They play off each other in support of their outlandish stories that they teach as fact, just like Ed McMahon did with Johnny Carson. And some of the stars who came on The Tonight Show were... After the Conspiracy News Roundup, there was the world premiere screening of a video titled How Not to Have a Heart Attack While Looking at Conspiracy Videos on the Internet. In this 10-minute video, Gabriel rails against all the other so-called doomsday prophets out there. It began as a lighthearted look at his competition, but by the end it became deadly serious. And our worst monsters are most likely our neighbors, ex-friends, and even some family members. Spiritual illusion, justice to God's people, the new Jerusalem is coming. Thank you. A woman came up to me and led me from one chair to another chair at the other end of the room. And then we sat down and I realized that I was moved because I was like directly, he placed me directly from front of Gabriel. And apparently he wanted to keep an eye on me throughout the service. And then uh, commenced about four hours of the most boring church service you can imagine. Gabriel would talk about conspiracy theories and then every once in a while his his uh, compliment, Neon would take over and talk about the life of Jesus. And um, then they'd ask some questions and then students in the front rows kind of like scribbled notes. And at one point he was um, talking about what made him different than all the other conspiracy theorists. Uh, I wrote this down because it's pretty good. Um, Jesus Christ Jesus Christ came, he was crucified, he was resurrected, he's the ruler of the universe, he will come again, and that is our hope. There is no other hope, not in the Dracos, not in the Anunnaki, not in any mortal race from another world. It's in Jesus Christ, that is our hope. Now if you put it anywhere else, you are being a stupid asshole. That's the Pittsburgh answer. And if you put it anywhere else... And then he like pumped his fist and he goes, Pittsburgh! And everybody starts applauding and this like really phony applause. And I just thought, 
how the hell did I end up here? If I have to imitate Paladin, I'd have to pull the mic away. <laughs> because Paladin likes to yell. Okay. You are not as ascended as Tilias Van. <laughs> but All I right. won't have to do Paladin. Okay, you might have to do a little Paladin. Laird Scott was the first of Gabriel's former followers to contact me. He fled the cult in 2015 after living there for seven years. During this time, the group had been headquartered in Sedona, then in Tucson, before finally moving to Tumacacri in southern Arizona, where it remains to this day. In the following conversation, Laird refers to Gabriel by his real name, Tony. I was in Sierra Vista, which is kind of southeast Arizona, and living with my mother. And something happened one night. I was watching an older Bermuda Triangle show, and this hunger, this drive to look for truth overcame me. And from that day on, I kept looking. And I wanted to do it, but I just didn't know how. So I got into the New Age stuff the channeling and then that's when I was in Arizona and found the community with the recording studio but they had this Palladian starseed theme going on that I was dabbling into so that was kind of a an extra hook and I had to visit for a few days to see if you know they liked me and I liked that before you know pursuing an initiate so I did and then I went back for Easter. It was interesting. Love bombed. It seemed, you know, too good to be true. And then after all the paperwork, I got accepted to go up to Sedona and work in the studio as a main function. I'm audio fusion material complement. Uh, Neon, do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, an audio fusion material complement is different than what some people refer to as channels. There's only one on a planet, and um, they are a vessel, and different celestial beings come through them, but the vessel, the human, has to be in agreement each time. They come through, and as you explained, as Taliesin Gabriel explained before, um, they they want him present, and they use what's in his mind, in his consciousness, his understanding. He doesn't go to sleep, and they just bring something through. Like Edgar Casey. One of the realities of life in the GCCA is something called uh, a transmission. What the audio fusion material complement does is relay information from space aliens. He refers to them as celestial over-control. And during these transmission ceremonies, the group gets in a big room and Gabriel starts talking in funny voices, delivering commands, telling people about their past lives. Uh, these are a major part of the life in the community. They bond people together. They uh, allow Gabriel to pass rules and have some distance and say, this isn't me, this is celestial over-control. Over control is teaching Gabriel all he needs to know. There is no other human that can teach Gabriel anything. It is the job of the celestial beings in his head to give him proper higher ways of doing things. Of all the cosmic beings with whom Gabriel claims to communicate, the two most important are known as the Brighton Morning Star and Paladin. 
every month at the full moon, the community would get together either in one place or in each house, everyone, you know, everyone at the same time, and they would read a list of prayers. We would pray for more help with the family legal services. We pray for more ways to make money outside the Caligastia system, which was outside the the devil system. At one point, it was almost every time followed by a a transmission, which were Paladin or other so-called celestial beings would speak to them, and sometimes more than one of them. You know, you'd have Tibetan monks playing really low in the candles, and then Tony and Neon would come in, and we would do the prayer, and then we would all pray out loud, and then we would wait, and then he would fuse with Paladin, and then Paladin would start channeling at that time, and I always had to record it off the mixer, you know, and if he had his mic here, and Tony was always squeaky, and then yeah, <laughs> you got to do it in the mic, or right. else we can't. Hear I, I, yeah, that, I was we can't see you on the podcast, right? But then the highest being under Jesus was the bright morning star, and he had a squeaky voice that he used when he was channeling, and it was always hard to hear. But I had it was a responsibility to record it. So your job was recording like all these like so-called celestial beings speaking through. Gabriel? Yeah. And like what kind of stuff would they say? Oh, they would tell you about the destruction coming to the planet and how bad it is. And then they would stroke Tony's great level of ascension constantly. And then they would start telling, they would even confront different people in the community about bad things they did. There's a lot of new information, cosmic names given, stories about people's past lives and talking about how great Tony was and some new information. And then I had to put it, get it on a CD to give it to the person that would transcribe it. Everybody in the community works a lot and Laird was no exception. He is an audio engineer, so in addition to working in the garden and in the kitchen, he recorded all the performances and practices of Gabriel's band, which has the unwieldy and just plain weird name, Talia's Van and the Brighton Morning Star Band. I'm not a, I don't want to be a rock star. Uh, I, I do want to be an influence for positive change in this world. So you had like two jobs, sound like two roles that kept you busy, plus classes, plus any events that came up. Like, was all your time taken? Like, did you have any downtime or did you have any time to sleep? Or It wasn't that we didn't have time to sleep. It just wasn't a lot. We would have our functions... And then there would be the the noon lunchtime meal, and you would get a break for that. But there was a rotating cleanup crew. So sometimes you had to spend an hour cleaning up after the lunch. And then you'd have your afternoon function, and then your dinner, there'd be a cleanup crew for an hour after the dinners. And you could be on one or two lunch and one and two 
dinner cleanups alternating with your schedule. 530 is when the lunch, the dinner would start and cleanup would start at six, get over at seven classes started at seven thirty until nine. And then you get done having a little conversation after the class, you get back to your house, maybe have a snack, maybe you had to clean up the living room floors, maybe you had to do clean your room. You know, you never know. Maybe an older lady needed help with something. And some people had to write reports for their uh, functions. And they would be on the computer until, like, my one roommate would be on there until sometimes midnight or even later. And then Sunday night he had to do a weekly report on top of that. And then we had the hands in the soil, which is everyone would come to the garden and do mass plantings or mass harvestings. And then it got to be like two times a week just to get the stuff done. And sometimes you could start as early as six doing that. So, yeah, the work was full on. Did you, um, in your jobs, did you get a chance to actually ever talk to Tony or see him close up or get the real Gabriel experience? Yeah, in the band, in rehearsal and in the studio. But... It was never, you were you were encouraged not to even talk to him about anything other than, you know, what he would bring up. So it was like he was too busy to really shoot the crap with you. But every once in a while he would, like in the studio or something. Or he'd go into one of his stupid rehashing out a story that he repeated all the time in rehearsal in between songs and then laugh. And then everyone would fake laugh along with him. Like it was the first time they've heard the story. And one other thing with his rehearsals is if his timing was kind of wobbly and the drummer wasn't on it, the drummer was, drummer and the flute player were the quickest where Tony would start yelling profanities at him for a highly ascended, almost like Jesus type of soul. He's yelling F words and just going berserk if they weren't in the right time or following the right thing or come in with the flute lick right mm-hmm. perfect and yet he could forget his lyrics and chords and and it was excusable and you couldn't yell at him for making mistakes but he could yell f words did you guys ever play shows or concerts or outside of the community or <laughs> inside the community like or yeah. were you just practicing yeah we would rehearse four shows it wasn't like a normal band that would gig and tour or even do it every weekend or twice a month. It was just very rare because they were so busy doing God's work in the community. They didn't have time to do the concerts. Was there kind of a specific point where you're sitting there and you're like, oh my God, I'm in a cult? It was getting so unbelievable that Paladin was the all-knowing spiritual being who didn't know shit sometimes and would say the f word in our and you know in the whole community taught he taught us how to how all the guys should wash their butts i mean a finaliter coming in to tell you that when we had a doctor and and other people that could have that would have been more appropriate and just tony's bad example his bad ego and just working so hard all the time and then getting yelled at to do more and work more and then I was already made up my mind I was leaving I was working on a plan 
it got ridiculous. But up before that part, you felt good working with loving people in the community, eating organic food and working with top-notch technology. It was pretty decent. I was told I was a first-time Urantian, so I wasn't a dirty old starseed that had lifetimes of being bad. So I didn't really get picked on as much as some of the other people did, although the starseed always thought they were better than first-time Urantians, even if they were younger than you, which I didn't like. Just a separation. But I wasn't directly, you know, yelled at too much. So... It was an easy life just skirting around. You know, you worked your butt off, but, you know, it wasn't too much trouble. It was just getting too hard to believe at one point. But that's why I stayed, because it was just too easy. They paid all your bills. They made all your decisions for you. It was just easy. After seven years, Laird could no longer ignore the realization that he was in a destructive cult. In June 2015... He called friends outside of the community and asked for help with his escape. They were going to come get me at 8.30 in the dark, and I'm, I had to double check earlier that day, you're coming for sure. I had some toiletries, food, and some clothes stashed. So I had a couple boxes that I took up to the gate when it was getting close to that time, I had it stashed down the root cellar where I worked. And it just looked like a box on the shelf. So I cleared the one up. And then I came down and got the ones that I had some clothes in. And I carried that up and I waited behind a tree. And then the vehicle came. And it, if it was one of them getting back from an event, you know. And, well, what are you doing there? You know, it would have been a confrontation. And I didn't want to get thrown out outside of my realm of being able to be in control of leaving like throwing out on the street type of thing because they've done that to people and that's why I didn't tell them I was leaving because I didn't want to be thrown to the dogs so the, the vehicle was coming you know it's like oh I hope it's not one of them because it was the gate that we'd come in and then they turned around, and then I knew it was them. So then I ran in, and I loaded up and drove away. Laird crashed in a two-bedroom apartment in Tempe with four other ex-members of the cult. He was eventually able to scrape the money together to get to Iowa, where he lives today. They called this group of people the Negative Network. Tony claims, you know, everyone's slandering him and lying and there's a negative network of people who've left. And really, it's a, an important support system. You know, once they turn their back on you, so you're out there all alone. So and the people who have left already experienced it. And so they're ready to help you. And it wasn't a really big group of us. There was just a few people that would stay in touch and kind of knew each other distantly and a few more, but since I have left and more have left, we've developed a stronger core of people that are uh, communicating constantly and trying to find strategies to help people that want to leave and help expose the lies, the fraud, and get journalists involved mm -hmm. and, you know, somehow get him in a straitjacket and in a sane asylum 
with him and his buddies, but I know that's not going to happen. But We live in a unique and exciting time in our planet's history. Earth appears to be poised between perishing in any number of potential disasters or emerging into a vibrant new era of cooperation and global responsibility. More than ever, the world needs strong, godly leaders to ensure the progress of civilization. In the past, these leaders have emerged as revolutionaries, sages and saints, teachers and prophets whose passion for God has illuminated them on the pages of history. Gabriel of Urantia and Neon Emerson Chase are old souls whose grace and wisdom equals that of the greatest spiritual revolutionaries of the past. They are today's most progressive spiritual leaders, sharing the responsibility of bringing expanded truth to this troubled world. Gabriel of Urantia and Neon Emerson Chase hold the mandate of the bright and morning star. They are the unknown masters. Check one, two. My name is Phil Thompson, and I came from an alien planet <laughs> somewhere billions of ways. Oh, you're Are a, you good? You're a broadcasting guy. You know how to. Oh, yes. I can do it if you want. Yeah. Mic. Check one, two, three. Check one, two, three. I don't know what you've got set up, but is, it, is that a good yes. level for you there? Okay. All right. Phil Thompson is a person I met in Tucson. He's the executive pastor at uh, Aldea Spiritual Community, which I guess is like a very progressive Christian community in the Tucson area. And uh, him and uh, Tony, a.k.a. Gabriel, met in 1978 in Tucson. Gabriel kind of made his way west uh, working in different Christian ministries, you know, as an employee. And by the time Phil met him, he was... He had his own little hippie commune, fledgling hippie community in uh, in Tucson, and he was trying to save the world for Jesus. This was a ministry on Fourth Avenue in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, it was Sunlight Ministries, and uh, Tony had a just started uh, this ministry. It was uh, more of a discipleship, take people in help them grow spiritually, it, and it could be anybody. It could be homeless people. It could be people that were just looking for a little more spiritual guidance, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And um, what were you doing? Uh, when I was working with Tony, we took people in off the street. We had people that through different avenues, different ways. Uh, he was a chaplain at the Pima County Jail, which I became a chaplain as well. And I think we had probably at least one or two people at least that uh, came from the Pima County Jail. It was released to us. And uh, so it was in some ways a cross between a halfway house and a street ministry. Uh, we got a, connected with a local church in the area, uh, which we teamed up with. And there was people in that local church, a lot of young people that also became a part of what we were doing, maybe not living there, although some of them did live with us. We, the property, we, we had enough property where we had, uh, we built some bunk beds and we probably had a, a, a pretty good sized room where, uh, the gals would stay in one room. There might be four to six of them. Uh, there was another room that was a little bigger where the guys would stay so that you could have probably four to six guys there. There was a kitchen. 
Uh, and this was kind of in the back of the house. The the house also had its regular living area as well, where Tony lived with his wife. And was uh, Tony positioning himself like as a spiritual leader or religious? You know, like beyond just the service aspect. You know, was he kind of positioning himself as some kind of teacher at the time? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think he had ambitions to. To be a spiritual leader. His ambitions were to lead people and guide them. And, you know, it's hard to judge people. I I, I really like Tony, and, and I still like him. I mean, uh, we've reconnected a while back, and and I don't know everything that's going on with what he's doing now. The stuff I've heard is not very positive. Uh, but, you know, it's maybe it's just me being sentimental, but I just always have a little fondness in my heart for people that I worked with years ago and good memories, so to speak. And so, uh, uh, but I think, yeah, he was definitely wanting to be a leader, uh, wanting to, to help people. You know, there's different movements or philosophies within American Christianity or within Christianity in general, um, different ways of approaching the faith. And, and one of them that had prominence in the 70s and 80s um, was something called the shepherding movement. And basically, they wouldn't put it this way, but I think basically the point of that is that salvation comes through sort of submission to authority. So you would have like spiritual elders who knew better than you, who were more godly than you. Maybe they had the gift of discernment, which is something that Christians talk about a lot, or uh, maybe they're just more experienced. And you as a young Christian would go to them and... They'd give you advice, help you live your life in a godly way and try to lift you up to their level. And of course, that just becomes really easily abused um, when you're going to another human being for their so-called spiritual authority on your life. In some extreme examples, uh, it became groups where, you know, people are told who to marry or how to dress, control over their sex lives or their finances, Basically, no freedom except for in this group. And I think Gabriel was really taken with that. The the element of the shepherding movement was, again, kind of in, in that discipleship frame where there was this idea that, hey, there are people that are spiritually mature. And if you want to learn things about Jesus and the Bible, you can come under their covering and they can teach you and disciple you like Jesus did his disciples. Uh, and, and I think the idea behind it was maybe good, but unfortunately, uh, people, man's ego gets in the way and there's corruption and there's control and those kind of things. And, and that was certainly the case with the shepherding movement uh, in the United States and even abroad. There was a group called uh, Children of God in the 60s and early 70s that was, again, part of that thing. You had that movement going on. And then there's all sorts of different things that you can get off track on. It sounds like you're describing version 1.0 of his of what he's <laughs> yes. doing now. Yeah, probably so. Gabriel self-published his memoir, The Divine New Order, in 1995. It's a strangely written book heavy on spiritual jargon and light on things like names and dates and locations. But still, a close reading can give you some insight into what makes Gabriel tick. For instance, he writes about a 1971 meeting with a Christian minister at a coffee house in Pittsburgh. The minister preached from the book of Revelation, and Gabriel says this made him determined to conduct his life, quote, with survival in mind. 
Gabriel also writes about a 1973 meeting with a group of Christian survivalists who were then preparing for the coming tribulation. Through them, Gabriel saw how a committed group could band together and survive the earth changes, famine, and war that were just around the corner. Gabriel seems to hear voices quite often. He also travels with his dead grandmother aboard a spaceship and learns from an extraterrestrial entity that the appropriate submission of a woman is key to a successful marriage. He also discloses the results of a Myers-Briggs personality test given to him by a Franciscan abbot. According to Gabriel, the test indicates that he is very intuitive with extrasensory perception and possessed with paranormal powers. Eventually, Gabriel would come to use these abilities to amass wealth and disciples of his own. And that's it. Thank you for checking out the so-called Prophet from Pittsburgh. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and I recorded and wrote and edited the thing. The executive producer is Kay Gerard. You'll be hearing from him in future episodes. And if you're into social media, and who isn't these days, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter, at uh, Prophet. And last but not least, I can be reached through my website, LennyFlatley.net.